Well, in 1939, Montgomery Ward tasked Robert May with writing a story of hope that they could distribute to children and to families that particular year. The country was just coming out of the Great Depression, and of course there were rumors of the impending war that was coming, and so hope was a very difficult thing to find. Not only in that, but May's wife had been struggling with cancer, and it seemed that the end was near, and so uh, soon in that year, the beginning of 1939, he began to write uh, this story. Well, in July, his wife passed away, and he had already begun writing, and he was really looking for inspiration. Well, his four-year-old daughter, Barbara, loved going to the zoo. There was a certain section of the zoo that she loved more than the others, the reindeer. And so every time they went, that would be immediately the place that she would want to go visit first. And so there he goes. He had his inspiration. So as he wrote and completed it in August, that book was distributed Uh, 2.4 million copies were made and given out uh, that Christmas season. And uh, later, 1947, uh, same uh, type of experience for him. Uh, Montgomery Ward, the board of directors, said, listen, we want the rights of this to be yours. And so sure enough, uh, they gave him the rights to that. And then in 1964, the longest-running TV Christmas special was produced and released, and you guessed it, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, one of our family favorites. Did you know that the name of Rudolph was almost Rollo? It was almost Reginald. I can't imagine saying Reginald the Rudolph the Rudolph Reginald. I can't even say it. I can't even imagine that. That's got to be Rudolph, that guy. And the picture of that, because many, of, if not all of you, have seen that, is this story of these misfits that were excluded, oppressed, pushed out of their own homes, venturing out, seen as oddballs, outsiders, and then coming back at the end and being the heroes of the story. Oh, that knows Rudolph, producing hope for, in the storyline, of course, Christmas and all that goes with it. Uh, Really a a very special, special story. Well, this account of Matthew chapter 2 displays in many respects hope for all of mankind, womankind, people, the opportunity to be able to experience hope in the only person who is Christ. And his account in particular addresses three different people groups. And you may find yourself in one of these people groups today because of what's taken place recently, the last year, the last two years of your life. One we've already mentioned. It's possible that you feel that in many respects you're an outsider. It's possible today that because of the previous year, what you're experiencing right now, regardless of your situation, that you're oppressed and you're feeling that weight of what's taking place and how others are treating you and in some respects feeling ostracized in that way. It's possible today that you are here and you are still in a deep-seated grief 
because of the loss of someone or something in your life in the last year or in recent months. And so I believe what the passage we're going to look at today, focusing on this witness of Christmas by Matthew, hope that it will in turn give all of us encouragement and hope today, regardless of where we are. But before we start diving in, why don't we pray together and then we'll start walking through this this sweet passage. God, we thank you for this message of hope that we have sung about from our hearts today. The messages we've already heard in the words and what was expressed when Ricardo shared how you are our hope. And I pray that this morning as we look in your word that regardless of where I find ourselves today, that we would all be encouraged by the hope that you provide for us. We love you and trust you for that. Speak now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's begin in Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And we're just going to walk through it and just take certain chunk by chunk, spend time that way instead of reading the duration of it. And then uh, we'll, we'll go all the way through verse 18 once it's all said and done. Let's begin in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For he saw a star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the beginning of this passage, we see these wise men, these three who came from the east, seeking after this one whom God had revealed to them that they needed to go to, looking for this star, trying to determine exactly where he was. And so uh, they went to Herod and they met with him, this this private or secret meeting, Herod spending time with these individuals, uh, trying to determine exactly uh, where this king of the Jews was. A little bit of Herod's background you may or may not be aware of. He was a very brutal leader who anytime his reign or person was threatened, the only thing that he could think of to take care of that threat was to completely eliminate, destroy, kill whatever individual came into his vision that could threaten him. So hearing that these individuals were going to find the king of the Jews when he was in essence the king of that country absolutely was a threat to him. And so the leaders of his religious group, the scribes and the chief priests, he called together to try to determine, okay, is this really what has been stated? Well, we know in Micah, in their conversations, the book of Micah in the Old Testament, which with they referenced, there was definitely uh, this uh, understanding of this was a prophet being fulfilled, prophecy being fulfilled, the king of the Jews was coming. Um, And so his immediate response after that was affirmed by this religious group, these leaders, was only, was only one thing. I have to eliminate this threat, this king of the Jews being born. And so in trying to deceive these wise men who came and spent time with him, whom he secretly once again met with to try to say, hey, listen, when you find out who this baby is or where the baby is, come back and get me. 
because I want to go to and worship him, an absolute lie. The fact was that he wanted to once again eliminate this threat to his rule. Did you know that there was an order placed, of course, before he died, that when he in fact did die, Herod, that many of the dignitaries that surrounded him, he had the order for them to be killed on the same day that he was because he wanted tears to be shed in the country and where he was because he knew that tears would not be shed for him because of what an atrocious leader he was. So that was carried out when Herod died. Many of these dignitaries, these leaders, were killed the same day, so there would actually be weeping the same day. Talk about a huge ego. The amount of pride he had in wanting people to mourn the day of, even if it were not for him. He was a horrible, horrible leader and produced several atrocities to people who feared him. So here he was, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. That here was this king of the Jews coming, he of course not being of the bloodline of David, not being a full-born Jew, being put in position by the Roman Senate, already having great issues personally, being threatened once again and having a low self-esteem, whatever he dealt with there, eliminating threats. In this position, needed to take action. And so we see this plan that he's laid out. Then we see in verse 7, Herod summoned the wise men secretly, which we've already addressed, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them off to Bethlehem, once again saying, go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me words that I too may worship him. Once again, a lie. After listening to the king, they went on their way. Not knowing any better, they thought, well, this is legitimate. Let's do that. Let's go. Let's worship him. Let's come back. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So here these outsiders are going in and worshiping this king of the Jews, this baby being born. Herod wanting to know where they had gone, what was happening, of course didn't, and then God revealing himself in a dream, telling them, do not go back to Herod, go back a different way. The star, some would say, in that day and time, especially those who followed astrology, was that this was a a, a strange event, it was an astronaut. Astro, astrological event that uh, took place was very unusual. We, of course, know, whether the wise men understood it or not, that it was a supernatural event produced by God, not just some astrological event that just happened out of the middle of nowhere, especially to the point where the star actually resided over Jesus, leading the wise men directly to him. We know the supernatural event, they recognizing that, and then being told in a dream and hearing the voice of God, these, these outsiders... Now, of course, we know Old Testament, the insiders, relationally to God, were the Jews. And even in the Gospels, we see this battle between, did Christ come just for the Jews or for the Gentiles or for both or uh, for neither? Why, why did he send Jesus? Who is salvation actually for? John 3.16, one of the best known verses in all of the planet. For God so loved the world that he gave his son Whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's for all. 
not just for some, not just for a designated group. So these individuals who went to worship, you would think would have been the scribes and these religious teachers, because they were the ones supposedly that were the closest to God. They were in that position. You would think that Herod would have sent them instead. But these outsiders, these individuals from the east, went and did so and worshipped. We, too, not being of Jewish descent, in the immediate, of course, we go back to Adam and Eve, and there we go, but this immediate, the Jews in particular, this, this people group, realizing we are not a part of that, we, too, are outsiders. And the fact that God loves us so much as outsiders, that he sent Jesus to die on the cross specifically for us, Gentiles, that the gospel truly is for all. We can understand as outsiders, too, the grace and mercy of God in our very lives. These wise men understood it. The ones who you would think would have been there weren't. And we, too, if we really looked at our lives, and the opportunity God gave us would have to say, or ask the question, why would God allow me to have a relationship with him and know him? Because he loves us. Because the gospel is for all. As they continue in this section, after listening to the king, of course, they had gone. Going into the house, they saw the child. And they went a different way. So verse 13. And when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for your child to destroy him. And so he obeyed. Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was fulfilled, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So here we see uh, this family, these in essence uh, refugees, being oppressed and having to transition to a different place, of course by the order of God to not stay, not return a different place, but to go and protect his family. So he obeyed and responded. Social justice is an odd subject in our world, especially in the church. For a long while, the concept of this justice, the answer to that of those who are being treated unfairly, unjustly, whatever it would look like, the answer is the gospel eradicate sin, to place our faith and hope and trust in Jesus. And so for a long time, conservative Christians focused solely on that, or for the most part. And so in the midst of that, those who were hungry or impoverished or sidelined, not recognized, the homeless, while at times that the generations of Christians who would see that at times would act, but it'd be very small and it wouldn't be a running theme. And so several years ago, there were groups within Christianity that saw this great need and how the church wasn't responding or acting in a way that was really making a significant difference outside of just sharing the gospel, really meeting needs. And so these denominations and these churches began to run around the idea of social justice. We are going to help. 
We're going to get involved. We're going to build homes. We're going to feed. We're going to clothe. We are going to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And so many of those in the process of that, instead of heralding out, holding out the gospel, have neglected it. And so theology and scripture, the inerrancy of God's word, some of the other pieces, even the gospel itself, has been compromised, marginalized by some of those groups. And while they were actually meeting great needs, the great commission to them became feed, clothe, and house. And so you can see the two distinct differences. We're going to share the gospel, but we're going to do very little to meet the needs of those who are hurting. Then you see the other side. We're going to do everything we can to meet the needs of those, but we're not actually going to share the gospel or the hope of who Jesus is. Then in recent years, there are these, uh, these individuals, these, these last two generations that are raising that don't see it as an either or. They see it as both. And so not only are they holding out the gospel, but they're sacrificing their lives for the sake of doing these, looking out for the refugee. And our country is filled with marginalized refugees. Whether they're here legally or not isn't the point. The point is there's great need. And these these last two generations... Not just being the hands and feet of Jesus and meeting the needs and giving their lives, but communicating the gospel as well. For those of us who have been in the church and known Jesus for a long time, we have a lot to learn, many of us. Watching these pour out their lives should be an encouragement to us of the hope that they're going after the oppressed and making a significant difference. It's not either or. It is both and to the glory of God. These, this family, obviously oppressed, obviously on the run, in jeopardy, listening to the voice of God, him once again showing up and protecting. Then we see in verse 16, Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious angry. Ooh, he wanted justice. He wanted whatever he called to be justice. And so the only thing he could think of, he sent out and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time he ascertained from the wise men. And so his reaction and response, because the wise men didn't come back and tell him where the baby Jesus was, was to kill all of the boys. Now in that region, Bethlehem in particular, they were probably about, and it's not specific as far as historical records, also with scriptural records, probably around 20 in that age range just in the city of Bethlehem. Beyond that, because it included the region, obviously, there were more. So his decision, his action, was because they didn't come back and tell him and because he couldn't locate the baby and because he couldn't take care of him himself was just to wipe all of them out according to the time that he had heard. Then it was fulfilled the prophecy that was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And so obviously in the midst of this, we see this deep-seated grief. Can you imagine being a parent in this day and time and hearing the decree 
if you had a two-year-old or under, to bring that two-year-old or your two-year-old was going to be taken and killed because he was so threatened by this king of the Jews. It would be heartbreaking. I can't imagine the grief that they experienced of this legislation that was to wipe out everyone underneath that age range. If you're already a parent, you can imagine looking back, whether you have a two-year-old or a 52-year-old, what your child, your son, how you would have reacted and responded. Great weeping, refusing to be comforted. The grief that they experienced had to have been unbearable. And so it brings about in our minds this idea of why is there suffering? Listen, this is a whole message series that we do not have time to tackle today. And so I'd just like to summarize it with this. Why does suffering exist? Why does God allow suffering in our lives? Honest answer. And again, I could go a lot of different ways. Why are you specifically suffering with what you're suffering with today? Here's my answer. Ready? I don't know. I am not God. And I do not superimpose myself on him in a way that I can explain why specifically you are enduring the suffering that you are. I don't know. That would be arrogant of me to tell you why. And there have been a lot that have tried over the years, over the centuries. But I hold on to, and I do know this, in the midst of what you're experiencing and your suffering, if you are a follower of Jesus, in the midst of it, he is with you. Whether you feel that he is or not, whether you feel his presence regularly or you do not, he is with you. Do you remember Hebrews 13, 5 and 6? I will never leave you nor forsake you.